What the hell happened in East New York? This is a podcast that tries to answer that question. I'm Alexander Abnos. There are four parts to this, and this is part two. In Kevin and Michael's first meetings, we heard a lot about East New York. The crime, the poverty, the attempts to save it, or at least make it a little bit better. But the more that I listened to those recordings, the more I became curious about Kevin himself. I found that as much as I wondered about why East New York is the way it is, I also wondered about why Kevin is the way he is. So, what's your name? Kevin Heldman, J. Uh, Aaron Zev in Hebrew. I only did a brief stint in Hebrew school, like two months. Never bar mitzvah. So, so you were born when? 1965. Where are you from? Uh, Queens, New York, next to Aqueduct Raceway, is now a dump, and uh, J. John F. Kennedy Airport, and a mile, 1.2 miles from East New York. So you grew up near East New York? Yeah, the, a different version of it. Uh, I lived in Howard Beach, Queens. Uh, at that time, was infrastructure shared the same infrastructure environment as East New York. The, we took class trips to the dumps. That's our, our playground when we were kids. We'd like fires and have dirt ball fights in the dumps. You know, I thought it was normal growing up around dumps. Um, pollution and the industry and the racetrack. You know, it's all you're in that environment and you, and, you know. You see how other people are living, so you know you live the same way. So, how did it come to be that you became a journalist? I came from a really hellish, crazy, abusive, sick family, uh, and uh, I'd not, it also, you know, I was trouble. So, you know, living on the streets, homeless, terror. so I had nothing. Uh, and one thing I had was school. I was smart, and I'd love smart, but not smart, arrogant. I like teachers. Most smart. Guys back then hated the female teachers. They tried to challenge them, embarrass them. I loved the female teachers. It was like, be my mom, take me away. You don't know what's going on in there. And I actually told them a famous story is when I was in kindergarten, I went to Mrs. Leaf, my kindergarten teacher, and I knew damn well why I was doing it. It's not like kids say the darnest thing. I was intentionally saying it. I was five years old. Uh, Mrs. Leaf, my father said the other day that he's going to pick up a chair and hit my mother over the head with it. She called my mother in parent conference and told her he said that. And my mother couldn't, I don't know, maybe she did deny it. She lies all the time. But she actually did say that. So I, I was saying it because I wanted them to know that I'm, this is wrong. Yeah, it's China. So that was early journalism. That's what I, I was, every piece, broken family, uh, bad teenager, drugs, uh, depression, running wild, cutting school, cutting myself, you know, just put, put in a, I was in another facility for a year, got kicked out for bad, bad behavior and put in the Phoenix house, which was hardcore. And eventually joined the army when I was 18. Did two years in the army, got out, pursued my earlier writing ambitions in college, then went to Columbia Journalism School and journalist ever since 91. And you've written for who? I've had contracts to write, written, killed by uh, Rolling Stone, Sports Illustrated, Harper's, uh, Esquire. But you've also written a lot of the same kind of, you've gone back to the same kind of stories again and again. My type of journalism is like, it's like substitute for life kind of, uh, morality, my morality, my thing, religion for me, so I use it. I can't just do like uh, fun stuff with journalism or like just make money or just uh, to watch movies. Sometimes I would be in the mood for a comedy, sometimes I'm in the mood for a drama, sometimes I want to see heavy documentary. It's not like that for me with journalism, you know, so I have to do like important, significant, like worthwhile of things that are of value, make a contribution actually. <laughs> Uh, 
But you were writing about like street people living on the streets in London, right? Yeah, a homeless shelter. Yeah, but that's a, yeah. Stayed in a homeless shelter for two months. Lived and worked in a homeless shelter in London. It was a sick, crazy. Alcohol. It was the only wet shelter in, in London. Or the, which the, most shelters they don't let you in if you're high or on drugs. Uh, this was Simon Center. The idea is you share the poverty of the residents and they accept anyone, no matter how violent, no matter what time it is, no matter what how condition they're in. It's crazy, you know. So you work there? Yeah. That was the best, best, most satisfying experience of my life, those two months. I, really? Oh, my God. I, Why? Because it's the first time I was ever transformed. Maybe it only happens once. Basically, the job is to help people in like non-degreed, non-tangible like, uh, ways. I didn't know how to do surgery. I couldn't do financial help. I couldn't you know, do anything useful. But this was like an all-purpose general like, uh, factotum you know, for the homeless. And that I could do. I'm really good at that. You know? give them blankets, you know, talk to them, listen to them, escort them to the shelter when they're like psychotic and you know, 50 times, uh, uh, break up fights, you know, do, I'm good at that. Uh, lugging stuff and, you know, uh, cleaning people up. I mean, guys are coming homeless, you had them take their boots off for like two months, we had lice in there. And but you also got yourself admitted to a psychiatric, yeah. what was that? Yeah, I've been exposed to that world. You know how many therapists I've seen, how many social workers. You know, you yeah, so mental. Yeah, I knew that. I knew that world. I knew it was there. There was stigma like hell, and they treat you like shit, and they, they deny all abuse allegations. So you're helpless, but you're helpless because you're sick. But it's not. Yeah, it's not legitimate sickness. So they treat you like like you're a prisoner, and it's wrong. But they don't say that. No one can say that they treat you like that because. If they do, the person, oh, what was he, he's on uh, 15 antipsychotics, he's a schizophrenic, so you take his word for it, he's 13 arrests. So they, you know, I said, I'm gonna follow myself through the system. I don't have to worry about confidentiality. So what did you do? I, I followed myself through the system. I did what they said, I called, and I stuck to the truth. I called the number that they, oh, advertising and all the mental health commercials and advertising, the billion dollar HHC budget. Called the number and said, yeah, if I'm talking to this call center guy, um, this is who they tell you to call if you're depressed. Is that, you know, if I'm just, just you know, if depressed, feeling down, shitty, I don't make a lot of money, relationship problems, it's all true. <laughs> uh, I feel like shit sometimes, I can't sleep. <laughs> he said, yeah, well, if you want to go, you go to the facility, but go at night. Said, they're not going to admit you unless you tell them that you're going to kill yourself. If you want to get admitted, say you're going to kill yourself. This is the jerk is telling me. So I'm like, okay. But I'm writing this down. The story has started. And it's not that far from my truth. I have been that person. I could easily be that person in manner and tone and look. Not, I didn't say I'm going to kill myself. I didn't say I'm going to, you know, I'm hearing voices. I, no matter how much I prepare for it, when, I, when it started getting rough, I still wasn't prepared for it. You know, I've been a normal person. I thought I had institutional background, but this is like, I was 16, 17, 18, 19. This is like, I'm, I don't know, 30 something. So I, all my, you know, one day of not having my New Yorker or TV, I'm starting to freak out and the crazy people, this is like everyone is psychotic in it's inner city, man. So what I have to say is I, I want to, I think I'm ready to leave. Once you say you want to leave, I'm voluntary. So they have, can keep you maximum for 72 hours. Then I know I give my notice. I thought it would work like that. I give my notice and the clock is ticking. I have three days, I can bear it. So I'd say, I give my notice in my head, I think I want to leave. He's like, honey, you're not going anywhere. You're involuntarily committed. I felt myself going white. So how long am I stay? It could be a week, three weeks, three months. It's up to us. And she walks away. I'm like, three months in here? I'm like, fuck, I can't even do the night, man. There's nothing to do. You know, it's like literally nothing to do. And there's one guy who I later bunked with when I pacing the floors like a hundred times, looking up, I think, chanting. And the next day, I think, uh, the cops come put me in handcuffs, take me upstairs. I'm in the psych ward and locked up in the psych ward. And anyway, I was in there for like a week and then just arbitrarily let, let go. Thank you. 
Now between those two stories he just mentioned and a few others, Kevin was earning quite a bit of praise. Journalism was now his living instead of just an outlet. In 2000, he won the Livingston Prize, which goes to top journalists under the age of 35. But still, Kevin was intense. He could say and do rash things. In short, he drove editors absolutely nuts. But at the same time, there was a quality and a bravery to his work that kept him in business. But then a few things happened that made him stop writing altogether. First, a story he slaved over was killed upon receipt by the magazine he was writing for. Not long after that, September 11th happened. And not long after that, the biggest blow. Sumi, Kevin's wife, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Um, not prepared. I didn't go. I thought I was tough, man. I was destroyed by it. I thought I could handle anything. And this is like, look at all this shit I listed. I thought I could handle anything. You know, I didn't. This is one thing I didn't contemplate. I didn't imagine. I didn't know it hit me like that. I saw all the other stuff, but it wasn't happening. It, yeah, you know, it wasn't happening to someone. She was like my family. She was like, love me. You know, it's like if you love a mother or something, your mother or your father or something. I didn't have that, so I don't know what it's like with her. She's she, unconditional love. You know, if I, everything was fucked up, I know she would love me. That's a really comforting feeling. So when she's being tortured, she's dying. And when she died, I mean, that, that's like devastating. That's like a, you know, wife dying. I, I, you know, I, I didn't know because I thought I just fooled myself thinking I had been through all this shit. Like, and I've seen all this stuff, and, you know, everything. What's going to, and it happened to me too, and it happened to other people, what's going to differ? But I didn't realize it never happened to someone I care about, as someone who's suffering, who I love, and you know, dependent on. And, uh, it's just, you know, it's torture, man. This is like sick, sick, sick torture. There's nothing they could do. This is like insane pain. I mean, uh, she lost, not just losing hair, but they had no facilities for this shit. You know, I've given her, I was giving her like, fucking hundreds of shots of morphine, uh, carrying on my back to the telephone, giving her fentanyl patches, like IVs, feeding her. She, she lost her complete mind. She lost everything, man. I was like feeding her with eyedropper, uh, panic attacks, oxygen, you know. So for, after she died, so she's suffering for three years, it was hell. She's screaming, delusions, morphine, every drug in the, psych, anti-psychotic, everything. It was constant going to the hospital. Um, she's in the hospital, they fuck her up in the hospital, fighting with insurance companies. I mean, it was sick. Uh, new treatments, the chemo, driving her thing, researching, experimental trials, clinical trials, marijuana, medical marijuana, nothing, and no support structure, you know. And then she died, and she died like she didn't want hospice because she went there one night. It was always sick institution. She said, "I don't want. I want to. I can't take care of you. You need people there. It's not going to be. Let's go back to Japan." So like, I'd rather die here, in broken apart, and then go back home. And go, I said, oh, don't bring me hospice. I said, "All right, I respect your wishes." But most, you know, that's how you deal with it. You put her at home. But she said she was don't want it. It's a shitty place to be, you know. So there's a lot of these things, man. That I played in my head. I fucking. I didn't cry my whole life. The last time I cried was like the five, I don't know, seventh grade or something, sixth grade, fifth grade. I was crying every day in public, man. <laughs> never, I could never, I was shocked that people could cry in public. I barely cried. But yeah, literally four years, I crying like crazy, man. Like, couldn't stop crying. I go to psychiatrists, because it's useless. You go to psychiatrists, you go to degree therapist, death therapist, useless. All I do is take, you know, 
all her leftover drugs, all the shit, I was completely fucked up. All the crazy shit, she, she I never shot drugs, but all her, she had left, I said, some crazy reason, she did it. Why are you even scared to do it? She had it through needles. I stuck myself with needles, injected her morphine, took all her crazy shit, fentanyl, you know, until it all ran out. Um, and it's like, I don't know, God, I was fucked up. I almost died so many times, overdosing. I mean, never overdose. I was taking like insane amounts of like stuff where I thought I was definitely gonna die. Like mix it with alcohol, I'd go out in the street in the curb and say, "All right, you definitely over. This is what it feels like." And I, oh, I sleep for fucking four or five days at a clip. Just take Ambien, you know, sleep for eleven hours, get up, you wake up, and then you take it around, and then you remember, "Oh shit, she's dead." And take twelve more pills to sleep. Sometimes I would, I'd wake up, go get the, the, the newspaper, and then I'd take you know, go immediately go back to sleep. And then I wake up again, I forget what day it is, and go back by news. I never, never said anything. I was like, find out later. Why did I buy two newspapers? I would do this four days at a time. That's how I was living my life. And I had no support, no family. I took her ashes back to after she died. I was wrecked. And I, I was with her when she was dying and trying to resuscitate her. I fucking put her in the body bag, all this shit. Then I had to take her ashes to Japan to give to her family. I'll get her on an airplane. I was a mess, man. And it lasted for a while. Kevin quit journalism. And in the years that followed, he taught at a youth home, he worked as an EMS technician, but he stayed away from writing altogether for years and years. Finally, in 2011, his byline reappeared, and the story was very Kevin Heldman. It was a series on the Albanian mob. Kevin was back, but he had changed, both as a person and as a journalist. Now I don't. I can't think of five journalists who I know well, who would make he, a point of saying, "I really, really want to spend time in East New York." But you made a choice. I mean, East. I mean, East New York was not completely out of the long history of journalism you were doing. It wasn't when you talked about, you know, no. It's the same. Rough. It's the same stuff, but it's the same topics and subjects and value contribution. But it's not like personal anymore. It's not like I see myself in East New York. It used to be I see myself in these places, and it could be me. And therefore, you guys should care about it, you care about them, and care about me. You know, it's just, but how is it different now? Because it's not about me. I'm never going to be in East New York. Actually, Kevin is very much in East New York. And as we'll hear in the next episode, it actually kind of seems like he never leaves. Even while he's on the subway home from there, or talking about it with his editors, in a completely different neighborhood. East New York has become a puzzle that Kevin simply can't figure out, even though he's been trying in some form or another to do so for most of his adult life. If Kevin can't figure this out now, writing this story, how will he ever leave East New York behind? All of that in the next episode. This podcast is presented by Dig and The Big Roundtable. It's produced by me, Alexander Abnos, with help from Anna Hyatt. Now, there's a written component to this podcast, too. It's Kevin's story about East New York. You can find it at dig.com, along with some great photos by Anna Hyatt and some really cool data visualizations. The theme song and other music for this podcast is by Jim Oger, with a little bit by me as well. The Big Roundtable publishes ambitious narrative nonfiction. You can find them at thebigroundtable.com. It's staff, founder Michael Shapiro, editor Mike Hoyt, senior editor Sissy Falagant, and publisher Anna Hyatt. Writers on the site are paid by reader contributions alone, so if you go there and you like what you read, please donate as you see fit. 
Dig curates what the internet is talking about right now. This entire project would not have happened without them, so thank you to Dig, and thanks to you for listening.